Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Uh, One of the first uh, people I had the privilege of meeting when I moved to Asheville to start a church with my family was a guy that we'll call Tony because that's his real name. And uh, he... uh, (laughs) He used the uh, apartment building kind of Starbucks coffee area um, downstairs for work. And that's the only place I had to work as well as a church planner. And so we got talking the very first um, day. And he was an awesome dude. He was like my first real Ashevillian that I became friends with. He was a DJ in the New York club scene. He wasn't from Asheville. That's totally Asheville. And uh, he came down from New York with his wife. And uh, they were um, adopting a little boy, and it was their first child. And so I remember I got invited to their adoption party for the boy a few months later. And uh, on the invitation, it literally said, we request two things, either ingredients for the homemade baby formula that we're going to make for them, and it included goat's milk and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the farm's where I could get that. And then also they requested uh, organic and recyclable toys. And I'm like, I didn't even know that was a thing, so I had to look it up. Uh, so I went, and it was a cool party, but we would hang out over the, the months that I lived in that apartment complex, and um, we would sit at the park with his little one- or two-year-old and my girls running around, and we'd had conversations about Jesus. He um, was not a believer, um, kind of believed in spiritual stuff, um, but we got to a point, there was one conversation I, I clearly remember. He said, Chase, you know, you talk about all this Jesus. I just want you to know I'm down with Jesus. Like, I can be down with that. I like him. He seems like a cool dude. I believe there's probably some spiritual realities out there. I don't think that, that all that there is what we can see and touch. But I got to tell you, if you're telling me that that same Jesus is, is the son of this God who, who created a place called hell, and there's such a thing as sin that he's going to judge, like, I just can't get down with that. That's something that I could never believe. That's offensive to me. And he put it so succinctly. He said, I could never believe in a God that would create heaven and then create hell, and then create this broken world and put us all in it where we have these desires to do all these bad things as this kind of real world moral test to figure out where he can send us after we die. Like that seems cruel. Why create all of this if you're just gonna send half the people to hell anyway? Like I can get down with Jesus, but this whole sin and judgment thing, I just can't believe. Well, um, we started a series of talks last week um, that we're calling Why Am I Running? And the whole series is meant to equip us to help people like Tony, the Tonys in our life. To help have conversations with folks that um, have run away from God or have kind of put up roadblocks to ever believing in him. Um, and in hopes that they might reconsider or in hopes that they might take a step or two back towards them. And we learned last week that this generation, uh, millennials and Generation Z, are running away from God in record numbers. They're running away from the Bible. They're running away um, from church. And there's many reasons for that. But one of the reasons that people are running away from God is because there are some truths in here that our culture finds ugly, that our culture finds offensive. And so what we're doing during this series of talks is we're diving into the hard truths. We're diving into the topics that... Pastors don't really want to talk about in the hopes that we can see the beauty that is really there. We can see the power and the truth. um, And that's what we can offer people. 
Um, but I, I had to agree with Tony when I was sitting there. And that's what we're going to talk about this week, the idea about sin and judgment and hell. <laughs> if this is your first week, oops, uh, come back next week. Uh, we're going to talk all about Jesus. It's going to be great. But I had to turn to Tony and say, if, if that's really the story that we're in, if it's really true that God created heaven and then hell and then he created earth as this kind of moral testing ground, then I would run away from God as well. Um, that's not something I want to believe in. But that's not the story that we see about God, about humans, about sin and judgment in the Bible. And that's usually the case. When someone says, I could never believe in a God that would do this or that's like that, I usually get to turn to them and say, well, good news, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't do that, and he's not like that. People usually don't walk away from God as defined in his word. People usually walk away from a distorted view or a caricature that they've made up in their head. So in order to get the story straight about God um, and sin and judgment, um, we're, we need to go to his word and we need to start at the very beginning. Uh, we need to start with creation. If you have your Bibles, um, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 26. There's going to be a lot of scripture. That's okay, right? We like scripture. We like hearing it read, okay? Um, but we just have to get into these important texts. And, and the reason I'm reading this is because from the very first page of the book, from the very first few verses of the Bible, we see that this idea that God creates heaven and God creates hell, then he creates earth as this testing ground, that's not the biblical story. What we actually see God doing at first is creating heaven on earth. That's the first thing he does. It says, um, if you read through the first part of chapter 1, there's this rhythm where the sun comes up and God creates something and says it's good and the sun goes down and the sun comes up and God creates something and the sun goes down and God calls it good. And so he creates light and darkness and water and land and sun and moon and animals and the birds and the fish. And then on the sixth day, it says this, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals and the birds and the small animals on the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. Underline those last two words, very good. See, the world that Adam and Eve inherited, it was perfect. There was no pain, there was no struggle, there was no sin. It was heaven on earth, literally. The Bible says that God walked amongst Adam and Eve. He dwelled in their presence. Heaven and earth, they weren't two places, they were one place Combined, and that's because that's how they were meant to be. But the world doesn't stay that way. It says this in chapter 3, and we read these verses a few weeks ago, but let's hear them again. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course we can eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. And she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. 
And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he had been the whole time. And he ate it too. And that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So sin enters the world at this moment, and as we'll see, it throws everything off kilter. Shame is really just the very first a long line of consequences that Adam and Eve have caused. In fact, um, God goes to them right after this and lists out some of these consequences. He says this, and he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you'll desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat. And until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you shall return. You see the far-reaching consequences of sin? It's not just shame, but now it's, it's physical pain. That's the result of sin, like, like the pain of childbirth. It's relational turmoil between Adam and Eve, between human beings, but also between God and humans. There's environmental chaos, like the earth fights back against us. That's like even natural disasters. That's vocational pain. Work isn't the joy that it was meant to be, amen. Like sometimes it's hard, it's frustrating, it's not as life-giving as it was meant to be. And finally, there's physical death. So everything in all of creation has been warped by sin. And notice, the serpent isn't the one that caused this. God's not the one who broke the world. All of this pain and all of this brokenness was brought in by Adam and Eve, by us. The serpent just knocked. But it was Adam and Eve, it was humans who opened the door, who brought that in. So if you're mad at how broken the world is, don't get mad at God. God didn't want it that way. And he warned us. We're the ones who broke it. So instead of heaven being a place on earth, humans literally unleash the power, uh, the destructive power of hell here on earth. And not just that one time in the garden. Now, even, in a dozen different ways, through our words, through our actions, through our, 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 um, our, our thoughts, we literally welcome and unleash hell here on earth. In big ways, right, like, like child trafficking, like genocide, like the horrors of war, but also in small ways, like in our pride and in our lust and in our rage and in our anger. The Bible kind of paints this picture of human beings. We're not these innocent people. No, no, no. We're, we're continuing setting these sparks that keep the world on fire. We, we've added fuel to the fire and kept it burning that Adam and Eve started all those years ago. James talks about this, um, even in the destructive power of the words that we use. Isn't it amazing how a father can say one thing to a child and that'll stick with that child forever? And it has consequences. There's power in our words. He picks up this, this concept of unleashing hell. He says, in the same way the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. This is, the, this is the part. For it is set on fire by hell itself. He's saying words, the reason that they can burn down your integrity, the reason that they can burn down community, the reason that they can, they can wound and burn down your children is because they actually get their power from hell. 
So James is saying when your coworker is gossiping around the, the water cooler, he's not just being annoying. This passage says he's literally speaking hell into the office when he's tearing down that coworker. And if words, simple little words, can unleash the power of hell, isn't that a scary thought? Just to ask yourself, how many times have I or have you pushed out heaven and welcomed hell in your little world? But this is the world we live in. We've kicked heaven out and we've invited hell to come to its place. And we can see the destruction all around us. And this, this is why God hates sin. It's not because he's judgmental. It's not because he's small-minded. It's not because he's vengeful. It's not because he's unloving. He hates sin because it hurts his creation. He, hurts sin because, he hates sin because it hurts the, the people that he created. The anger that he feels towards sin flows out of his love for sinners. And you've experienced this. When you see a loved one getting hurt or in danger, don't you feel that anger rising inside your heart? Right? When someone hurts or threatens a, a friend or a family member, we feel that. And the more you love someone and the more real the threat and the danger is, the angrier you, get out, you, you feel and the more likely you are to, to strike out or to confront whoever it is is posing that threat in order to protect the one that you love, right? It's God's fatherly love that causes his righteous anger towards sin, the sin that hurts and threatens the people that he loves. And you might be thinking, okay, well, I can see how some of the things that God calls sin are harmful, but there's a lot of them that I can't, I can't see any way that they could harm me or harm another person. Doesn't seem like that's possible. And to you, I would say, well, that's because you're dumb. <laughs> and I'm dumb too, right? Morally, we're dumb. We want stuff that hurts us. We desire things that are bad for us. The Bible says that sin has blinded us. It's actually made us foolish. Our moral picker, it's broken. It's broken. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man. And in the end leads to destruction. In the end, everyone dies, right? So everything we see is broken here. But here's the cool thing. It's not the way that it's going to remain. God's promised in spite of what we did and we currently do, he's promised to make things right. And you can see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 3.15. Before he talks to Adam, before he gives the consequences to Eve, he says this. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Even before he tells Adam and Eve what the consequences are for this sin, he gives them this little glimpse of hope. He says, whatever the consequences are, they're not going to remain that much longer. This is what we call the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says there will come a day when the serpent's going to be killed, where his authority and power is going to be no more because God, through one born of a woman, he's going to look like the serpents hurt him, right? But he's going to ultimately crush the serpent's head. So even in the very first three chapters of the Bible, Tony's story has fallen apart. This is not a vindictive, scary God that, that's created heaven and then hell and then the earth and just waiting for us to slip up so he can send us to one of two different places. No, no, no. This is a story of God giving us perfection and us messing it up in the garden and today. 
and a God of grace and mercy doing everything in his power to fix what we broke, to redeem and restore what we initially lost. And that's God's ultimate goal. (laughs) This is going to shock you. God's ultimate goal is not to figure out who's going to heaven or who's going to hell. His goal is to restore what we had lost, to bring back what we once had. His goal is heaven back on earth. Read the last chapter of Revelation. That's what you see. And this is crucial. His goal isn't to get us out of the earth and up to heaven forever. It's going to sound like I'm cussing here. I'm not. His goal is to get the hell out of earth, right? And the hell out of us while we're on the earth and eventually bring heaven back down to the earth. That's, that's a big reason why Jesus came. We're going to go really in-depth into this next week. But he's, he is that one born of woman that crushes the serpent's head. And um, he took on the punishment that we deserve for unleashing hell here on earth. He made a way for God to forgive us of that rebellion. He made it possible for God to send his spirit inside of us to push that hell out and to get more and more heaven in so that we sin less and less and become more and more like Jesus. People that have a problem with hell usually don't add Jesus to the equation, right? Jesus is proof that God is not this vindictive judging God, right? One look at Jesus removes all those doubts. In Jesus, this is not a God who stands before any of us and asks us, hey, do you think you're good enough to get into my kingdom, to get into heaven? No, no, no. This is a God who asks all of us, hey, will you please let me heal you? Will you please let me restore you? Will you please let me redeem you? And ultimately what Jesus did was he paved the way for heaven to come back to earth one day. Colossians 1 says this, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Through Jesus, God will one day reconcile or bring back together heaven and earth. And it's interesting to think that that reconciling has already started. You may never thought of it this way, but when you, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and when you allow him to heal you, when you're in Christ, what the Bible calls it, you're a little place here on earth where heaven's able to come back. Not perfectly, but you're a little area where there's less hell and there's more heaven, and there's more heaven coming. And this brings us to what I would call the logic of hell. If this is the story that we're living in, not a story of God creating heaven and hell and then this cosmic testing ground, but if the story really is a creation, uh, the fall, redemption, and restoration, hell is kind of a necessary part of that. If heaven's going to enter down here on earth, hell has to go somewhere else, right? If light's going to come into a room, what happens to the darkness? It's got to leave. If you really want to heal your body, the doctor has to remove the disease. So if we really do pray, um, Father who, who art in heaven, right, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven, there also has to be this desire in us that all those powers and all those people that stand unrepentantly opposed to God's kingdom and his work of healing, they have to be sent out. They have to be removed and placed somewhere else. That's the logic. In fact, you might not know this, but the hell that most people refer to when they think of the eternal hell, where where people will spend eternity there, that, that doesn't exist yet. And Satan's never been there. 
right? Tony's story just falls apart. I did a whole sermon, What Happens When We Die. It was a few weeks after Easter last year. You can go online and get that. There's a present heaven and there's a present hell that serves as kind of this holding place. That's what Jesus refers to as Hades. But the eternal hell will be created once Christ comes back to earth. We receive our glorified bodies. There's the great white throne judgment where humanity is divided into two. And that's when eternal hell will be created. But here's the thing. God never intended to use that for humans. In his mind, humans would never go there. It was for Satan and for his demons. But for people that fight against God, that fight to keep hell here on earth, that's where God will allow them to go. And I know this is a hard subject. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds. No one wants to believe that hell is a real place. That's why there's a lot of teachers that will tell you it's not. But Jesus says that there is many, many times. And you should trust Jesus more than human teachers. Jesus actually teaches us most of what we know about hell. He talks about hell more than any other person in the Bible because he loves us so much. And he doesn't want us to go there. He does teach that hell is eternal, that it's a place of conscious pain, um, that it is filled with fire. He gives us a lot more details. But the word he uses for hell is instructive. I think it will give you a good idea of what it is. Um, he never uses the term hell. He always uses the term Gehenna. And Gehenna... Um, it's actually, it was a physical place outside the city walls of Jerusalem. You can look it up on Google Maps. It's still there. Um, it was the, kind of the trash dump. Um, but Jesus used Gehenna as kind of like a metaphor. And it had this dark history in Israel. In the Old Testament, it's known as the Valley of Hinnom. When Israel was going through a season of rebellion, a few seasons, they would go to Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, and that's where they would worship their, their false gods. And part of what they would do, a certain group of them, is they would practice child sacrifices. So they would take their little toddlers and their little two- and three-year-olds, and they would slaughter them on behalf of these gods and goddesses. Their blood would run on the ground, and they'd leave the corpses there. You can read about it, First Chronicles 28 and chapter 33. And so because of this, this area kind of became a symbol of Israel's injustice. And, in, and Israel's idolatry. And the prophets during this time period, if you read through some of the, the major and the minor prophets, you can, you can read about their hope, this promise that God had given them that one day God would come back and he'd set up a kingdom of justice where kids weren't killed. He'd set up his city once again. And when he did that, he would kick out all the rebels and all the destructive powers outside the city into the valley of Hinnom, into Gehenna. Right? It's kind of this thinking of you like that place so much, you can just stay there. See, we think of heaven as being up and as hell as being down. In the Bible, heaven's always inside. Inside the city, inside God's presence. Hell is always somewhere out, somewhere outside. During Jesus' day, Gehenna was basically the city dump. And it's where they take all their trash. It's where they take all the corpses of the animals. And um, they didn't just dig holes. They would light it on fire. So every single day someone was going out there, and you can imagine the smells and the maggots from the corpses and the heat of the fire um, and the smell of the smoke, not pretty. And, and uh, that fire was lit by human hands. That's part of the reason Jesus used this. And Jesus says that's what hell will be. It's a horrible place, a flame and judgment, but it's only necessary because of what we've done. It's a necessary evil. The things that are opposed to what God wants to do inside the city, they have to go somewhere. 
So they have to go out. They can't stay. That won't work, right? It's like saying, hey, doctor, I want you to heal me, but could you just leave the cancer? No, you can't do that. I get that people don't like the idea of hell, but by virtue of what God's doing and his healing and his restoring, it, it has to exist. And people that get so mad at the idea that God would actually judge sinners or judge people opposed to him, remove them, you really have to ask, well, do you really want God to heal the world? And if you do, then that's a necessary evil. You can't have it both ways. The prophets viewed this kicking out of sin of moving the rebels outside the city gates. They didn't view it as unfair or horrible, but as a grace because it protected the people that were inside the city. You see, when, when the people would go and sacrifice their children to these monuments in, in Gehenna in the valley, if you read about it in the Bible, slowly those monuments, those idols, they didn't stay in the valley. They got a little bit closer to the city and a little bit closer to the city. And the people would move it a little bit closer until eventually those idols were inside the homes of the people that worshiped them, right next door to the people that worshiped God, right next door to the people that didn't want any, um, anything to do with this idolatry. So that this evil force had always found a way to affect and infect other people. And so God's judgment, this pushing out on the one side, it has this sense of, hey, you made your bed, go lie in it. You like worshiping those gods so much, you can, you, can, you can have those gods. If you want hell so much, then I'm, I'm not going to stop you. It's God giving people exactly what they want, freedom from him and from his presence and his authority. But on the other side of that same coin, it's this amazing form of protection. It's God saying you are free to make that choice and to do everything you can to keep hell here on earth. But I'm not going to let that choice hurt those that have made the right choice. And probably the most beautiful picture I can see about what eternity is going to be like, it's in Zechariah 2. It says this, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run and say to that young man, Jerusalem, this is, this is the healed, the new eternal city. If you read in Revelation, the last thing you see is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to be with man and God moving back into that city, Right? He says, this, this, this eternal city, this, this redeemed city shall be inhabited, look, look at this, as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. You see, this is not God creating heaven and hell and then this cosmic testing ground. No, no, no. This is God giving us perfection, heaven on earth, us ruining it, God being willing to give his own son to save those that are rebelling against him and one day promising that it's going to be all made new. And in this new city, he wants as many people to come in as possible, so much so he'll tear down the walls. Anyone is welcome to come, good people and bad people. Sinners and saints, anyone that wants to accept the free forgiveness of Jesus is allowed to come in. And after he welcomes all that come in, he's going to push the evil and those that are opposed to him out. And he's going to stand as our protection. He will be our city walls. And it's interesting, from the outside, what does the Bible say those walls look like? It looks like judgment and it looks like flame and it looks like fire and it is. But from the inside... It looks like the glory of a loving, protecting God 
that desires all be saved. And his heart is never to send anyone outside the city gates. But it's a choice he'll let people make, right? So it's not this horror story that Tony had in mind. It's a love story. It's the greatest love story that's ever been told, right? So sin, judgment, hell, they're hard truths. We could admit that. But I don't think they're ugly truths. I don't think they're necessarily offensive truths. When you see them in the whole storyline of the Bible, they're necessary realities that exist in the world that we're, we've broken. But listen, they're not realities that a single one of us ever have to experience or live. The Bible says that God desires all be saved. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish or be pushed out, but be brought in. So I don't, it would be so horrible of me to, to give a sermon on these topics and not give people a chance to respond. Ask yourself, are you inside the kingdom? Have you asked God to heal you? Have you bowed your knee to the lordship and saving grace of Jesus? And if you haven't, this is not something to play around with. This is eternity at stake. And now is the day of salvation. Now freedom can be found. Now you can come inside the city gates, but at some point, the gate has to be locked. And you don't want to find yourself outside. So across all of our campuses and online, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes, if that's you, and you don't know that you know that you know you want heaven, not hell. <laughs> you don't know that you know that you know that you've made Jesus your Savior. I'd like to invite you to pray something like this. God, I am a sinner. And I know that and I feel that. And I've unleashed the power of hell in all these different areas of my life. And I thank you for this opportunity to think about my eternal future. Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ. I want to be in him. I want to be forgiven. I want to be inside the city when all is said and done. So would you forgive me of my sin? Would you, would you bring me in your, your family? Would you wash me clean? Would you send in your spirit? And it's in the name of Jesus, my Savior, I pray. Amen. Let's keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do two hard things. We did this at Easter, but if you prayed that prayer as a sign of confessing, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Would you just raise your hand for a moment? Just raise your hand. Praise God. <laughs> That's awesome. Best decision you'll ever make. If you did pray that prayer, I want you to listen to your campus host. They're going to give you next steps, but I really want you to tell someone. Tell a pastor. Tell someone with a name badge. Tell the person that brought you. We just want to celebrate what God's done. And for all of us, Father, would you help us be institutors of heaven here on earth? Would we long for our heavenly home? Would sin just get so old and tiring and ugly and disgusting? And would your grace and your kingdom just attract us more and more? We long for the day when you'll make things right, but we thank you for your patience so people can choose and make the right choice. And what an honor and a privilege that we will be counted inside your kingdom. We're forever grateful for that. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. 
If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.